Good morning and welcome. This is Once a Nurse, uh, the original. I have to think about that every time I say it because it used to be Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. So uh, today we've got a special show. Uh, I'm, if I didn't introduce myself, I'm Leanne Meyer. And um, today is a special show to me because this is one of those areas of nursing that I know the least amount about. And this is in the area <clears throat> of um, uh, life science companies and clinical research and some of those things. And so I have a friend that I'd like to bring in in just a minute. Um, Janice Nissen uh, was on Once a Nurse about six months ago, right before we did our conference in Orlando for Power Up Nursing. And uh, she came in and shared with nurses what nurses can do in this area that, you know, I never thought about such an area. But um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But then also we will have uh, another uh, guest, Jessica Saucier. Saucier. Uh, she taught me how to say her name and then I forgot. <laughs> so we'll be bringing her in in just a minute too. But uh, she has a very interesting nursing career and we will be talking with her about that. So um, I just want to say that um, I'm really grateful to have both of these people come on today. And uh, I'd like to bring in Janice first. So welcome, Janice, to Once a Nurse, <clears throat> the original. Thank you for coming. Thank you for the invitation. It's so nice to be here again. And I'm really uh, excited that we're able to have the second podcast that I think will focus on um, a specific nurse journey from moving from the bedside to the life science industry. So thank you. Yes, I think it's those experiences that we tend to remember over all of the talk. We can do all the talk we want, but it, if those words and phrases don't really resonate with us, it's hard to have them stick with us. But certainly a person's experience uh, does do that. So it's been a while since you and I have talked, and I would like you to just explain kind of where you're coming from so that people have an idea of why it is that you're in this effort now to bring nurses into the industry. Yes, so uh, thank you so much. So I have, have worked as a nurse um, for several years, have really most of my working career in the life science um, industry at, at two companies. Um, but one of the things I realized in the last company that I was at was that there were so many nurses that worked at the company. Um, and we all agreed on one thing. And that one thing was that we never learned about this industry in school. And so it seemed like there was a real educational gap here um, that needed to be filled. Um, and that was that nurses needed to learn about this industry how it operates, the fact that it is a regulated industry, and importantly, that there were so many roles that nurses could play um, in this industry. And let me start by just defining that life science is defined as biopharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, diagnostics, and all of the companies that actually support those, those particular companies, whether they be data companies, whether they be um, clinical research organizations, whether they are market research. So it's a big industry. There's a lot of opportunities. And with the nursing places that we have right now, with 100,000 nurses 
that have left the profession in the last two years, I want those nurses to know there is a place for you in this industry. And so I developed with um, four other nurses, Jessica being one of them that you're going to hear from, um, in a partnership with the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, a credential certified program called the Certified Nurse Medical Affairs Professional. And when we last talked, we were still developing it. And I'm happy to say it's now ready and available for, for everyone to, uh, to take a look at. Um, so the educational program is there um, and always happy to talk with individuals on LinkedIn if they have questions about the program. How would they find the program? Yes, so um, you can go to nurse2pharma.org and that is the website that takes you to the program so that you can learn about it. It is a completely online program. Um, it's 15 different modules that take you through um, both how the industry operates, um, the different roles in the industry, and even importantly, what are the transition considerations you need to think about when you move from that bedside to a more corporate environment? Um, things like moving from direct patient care to indirect patient care, um, and also different platforms and tools that you would use. Um, but I will say that it is an industry that has a lot of opportunities. It has a favorable compensation package and maybe even some work flexibility options for remote or hybrid work as well. That is fantastic. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit more too, as we bring Jessica in too. So maybe we could welcome Jessica at this time. And uh, I'll try and say her name better, Jessica Saucier. Very Did good. I Yay! I get an A. <laughs> okay. So Jessica and I just had an opportunity to talk a little bit. We've been trying to get together for a while and uh, IT and various other things. It's been a challenge. Um, I'm very interested. Uh, uh, Jessica is has many, many talents and has some things that are quite different than the average nurse that, um, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, we might be more familiar with. Um, so she uh, started out in um, doing uh, liver and kidney transplants, which is really different to me and very exciting. So um, we'll have her talk about that in just a minute. Also, she is, um, the director, you know what, I'm going to start coughing. So I am going to just bring it back to Jessica and let you talk about what it is that you do. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Leanne. Um, I'm really glad to be here with you guys. And yes, I do have a very interesting um, story. Um, looking back on it, you know, it's mine. So I don't I don't necessarily think anything about it. But uh, hearing other people's, I'm like, you know what, this is really interesting. So uh, I was a baby nurse, graduate nurse. Um, I had in my last um, uh rotation, uh, seen a, or been involved in a surgery where they did a kidney transplant and heard about uh, there being openings on the, on the transplant floor in a hospital in uh, Texas. So I applied and I started my, my transplant journey. What I loved about um, being on the transplant floor is not only did I get experience in 
um, a specialty. There, it's obviously, you know, transplant is a specialty, but there was also some critical care components. You have um, end-stage liver disease, end-stage kidney disease um, that patients that you, that you need to care for, and that takes a special um, amount of, of care. Uh, and then I also, you know, have the, the med surge background uh, as well, because anytime a transplanted patient comes into the hospital, they must go to the transplant unit to have their um, immunosuppressant, immunosuppressant medication managed. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm also a, a certified clinical transplant nurse. I sat on the um, American Board of Transplant Certification, helped write the test. Um, after I took it originally, I was writing uh, additional questions for it. So I, I, I loved my transplant journey. I, I miss it. So when you were, um, you go, you fly to wherever the, the operation is going to happen. Actually, no, I wasn't on that side. I wasn't on the procurement side. I was on, um, the, you know, the, there is a deceased patient in our area. We call in a, um, a patient that is on the list to receive an organ. And my job was to help prep that patient for their um, transplant. Okay. Very exciting. I'm sure they must be just terribly frightened and excited, but you know, it is hard to hear what you're having to say. Was there yeah. any tricks that you had to be able to help them? Because I know in general, nurses, especially during discharge, have a really hard time getting the patient's attention and mm -hmm. having them be able to understand what was said to them. Yes. Prepping for the surgery, it's a very unique time. Um, it's exciting. It's scary. It's, uh, it's sad because you know that someone has, has passed in order to uh, give you this gift of life. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it, and you're right. I mean, education during that period is very difficult. Um, and, and discharge is the most important because they're on a lifelong regimen. And fortunately, in our program um, at the hospital that I worked in at, at Texas, in Texas, we had a lot of classes before and after transplant so that there was that repetition in place already. Um, and then while they were you know, in the in the hospital, we just kept continue to reinforce the things that they had already learned and said, you've learned this, now it's time to implement it. You know, teach me back what you know and let's assess from there. Yeah, that's always a, a lot of times in the hurry of trying to get people discharged or just getting the education in, we tend to forget that they have to repeat back to us what they got because that's the only way we can know. Yes. Um, and we did a, the whole team did a great job because we had very, very um, educated, ed educated patients that could manage their their uh, regimen very well when they were discharged. OK, so what we want to talk about and get into here now is the nurse careers and life science companies. So, Jan, can you talk a little bit about what are the life? Oh, you did uh, say that already. Um, did you speak yet about the rules available, like uh, any kind of specifics? Yeah, so let's um, let's talk about that, and then I'll turn it over to Jessica to talk specifically about sort of a day in the life of the role she does. So I think that will be most um, interesting for your listeners. So the roles in life science can range from those that are in the research and development area, um, which might be clinical trial, uh, uh, clinical trial management, um, and, and Jessica will talk a little bit about that. 
um, because these companies have to do are regulated. So they have to do clinical trials and make sure that they are ensuring patient safety throughout the, the, the given trial and that they have the right diversity of patients in trials. So clinical trials is, is sort of one area. Pharmacovigilance is another. And what does that mean? Pharmacovigilance basically means uh, following patients with uh, making sure that they have any effects um, either during the trial or after a product is on the market and that they are collecting all of that data, watching for certain events. It's another area that is uh, very popular with nurses working in life science. Um, it can also be outcomes research. So look, doing uh, studies to ensure that you are looking at the value that this product is providing such that it would reimbursed um, by either the government or insurers. So outcomes research can be another area. Um, in the medical affairs area, it can be medical writing. There are so many documents that um, require clinical and medical knowledge, um, whether they be submissions for a new product or their summaries of uh, clinical meetings or congresses. Um, it can also be medical information. Uh, all of these companies get calls from healthcare providers or consumers who ask questions. And um, all of that information needs to be conveyed either in written or in a live format and has to be compliant with the approved label of that particular product. It can be in commercial roles such as sales or marketing or account management, uh, where you are working with healthcare professionals um, to educate them about a given product. It can be a nurse educator role. Um, it can be a patient engagement or a health equity role, or even employee health services as well, because these companies want to ensure the safety and the health of their employees. So in our program, we actually break out 12 different roles. What is the role? Uh, what skills that you might need in that role? And then what's importantly, a typical day in the life um, okay. of doing that role. And we think this will really help nurses dependent on their areas of interest to decide which yeah. of these roles I think is the one that would be right for yeah. me and that therefore they can apply for that role. So, I, you know, maybe. <clears throat> go ahead and finish. I thought I you had Maybe we want to ask Jessica to talk about yeah her role as a, um, as a nurse educator at a leading clinical research organization. A couple of things I wanted to just say before we go there is uh, what I heard from you is that it is a lot about detail, uh, a lot about research. So people who like data, who like IT, who feel comfortable with computers, uh, you'd also have, the, have to have the ability to both write and speak um, to a variety of different people. So those would be some of the skills, I think, that would be good for people to know these are what you need to have. So Jessica, welcome again. And um, I'd love to hear about a day in your life. I also want to point out that in one of the trials uh, that you were involved with, uh, with vaccines, you specifically looked at our country's demographics and you brought in people to the clinical trials 
that match our demographics. That wowed me. So whatever else you've done, I'm impressed with that. Sure. And it, let me let me be clear. It was a team of people who did that, right? And I was just one of many. Um, but yes, I'd be happy to tell you about that. Before I start, I want to kind of give you some insight into how I transitioned from the bedside into research, because I think that that's helpful uh, for the individuals who are considering going into these roles. Um, Again, I work for a clinical research organization, so research is what we do. It's it's mm -hmm. the it's the most important thing. So having a little bit of experience in that area is very important, um, and being educated in that area. Um, so, as a clinical transplant nurse, I happen to have an opportunity um, when my hospital was creating a research program. Um, they wanted to do transplant research, so immunology research, delayed graft function, um, so on and so forth. So they knew how to do research, but they needed a clinician. And they chose me um, the best day of my life. Uh, and they did that because not only did I have a passion for transplant, but I ended up having a passion for research as well. So I was a clinical transplant nurse for uh, a number of years there at the hospital that I worked in in Texas and learned a lot about phase one, phase two, phase three um, clinical studies. I uh, learned a lot about uh, some of the words that um, become, you know, part of your jargon uh, when you're in research, and that's inclusion, exclusion criteria, principal investigators, um, good, good clinical practice, all those things, right? Um, I ended up, long story short, hearing about a role in a clinical research organization called a clinical trial educator um, or clinical nurse educator. And uh, they primarily needed people who were nurses um, and also had a research background and ding, 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 that's what I had. Um, it was a fascinating um, role in that there was travel involved and I had never traveled really for, for work. And so I was intrigued. Um, I interviewed, I was given the, the role and uh, the rest is history. You know, now I'm a director in that department, been in there, that department for about eight years now. So what does the role look like? Um, what I'm going to do is kind of give you an amalgamation of a couple of different roles in the clinical research organization um, that can be delineated at some point in the future, but it gives you kind of a little bit of a better overall picture, right? So you have um, clinical trial educators, you have clinical nurse educators, you have uh, clinical research associates. Basically, all of these individuals are um, there to ensure that um, Patients are given the opportunity to enroll in, in research studies, that they're treated safely and um, they are treated ethically, that the information that's being collected is correct, um, that the patients are continuously safe. Um, and in the end, what we want is for our patients who have enrolled in clinical trials to uh, have an excellent experience and we want the data to be uh, quality data so that that information can be presented to the FDA and say this drug is safe and effective or maybe you know what there's some issues with this drug and we need to discontinue this program. Um, in my particular instance the thing that I like most about my job is that I am able to really have a patient perspective 
um, come to the staff of the site that's conducting this trial um, with a patient perspective, uh, discuss the patient pathway. Are there any uh, ways in which they might consider reaching out to others to help spread the word about this study? Um, is there you know, anything in particular we need to take into consideration for this particular patient population that we're asking to uh, come into to this trial? And then you talked a little bit about um, the, the vaccine studies. I think that um, it's important to note that in 2020, you know, when, when uh, COVID was occurring, um, it was an opportune time for the FDA to really step in and say, hey, you know, we've been talking about diversity and inclusion in clinical trials for many, many years now, and we've really not done anything about it. So, you know, let's take this opportunity to really, like, Put our money where the where our mouth is and do something about uh, diversity and inclusion in clinical trials. And so I happen to be um, on the uh, one of the vaccine studies as a clinical trial educator. Um, I was the project manager for that particular clinical trial educator group that was focused on recruitment. And our our goal was to work with a team to say, you know, how do we actually implement the tactics that we've been talking about to have a more racially and ethnically diverse representation um, in, in, this, in this clinical study. Um, and it took a lot of work. It was a lot of boots on the ground and it was a lot of just tenacity. Um, and in the end, we did meet the goals. So a uh, vaccine study had a rep was a representative in the amount, the the uh, racially and ethnic makeup of their um, study was representative of what we expected to see because it matched the population um, of the United States. Mm -hmm. And that is huge. Um, yes. I have done something not connected with this. It was actually with personality um, uh, interest and interest inventories. And um, getting that kind of data is really hard to do and, and get it in a way that it does look familiar to people who are uh, reading it or, um, you know, getting uh, information from it. And just to reiterate the importance of it is that you may or may not know, you're, you know, the layperson may or may not know, but medications um, are are metabolized, affect the body differently when different genetics are in play. And so it's important to test the same drug on a, a racially and ethnically diverse population to see if there are any differences. Mm -hmm. Well, and then there's gender. For mm -hmm. years and years and years, while I was coming up at school in my early years, um, they simply did not do clinical trials on women because they just felt like there were too many um, uh, variabilities with women with periods and confounding babies and all kinds <laughs> of things that you know they just didn't want to have to deal with right. so they just assumed that it would work the same on women as it did on men and of course now we're realizing that that of course we're never the same as men so mm -hmm. uh, that's that's not going to be true yeah and um, yeah exactly so um i don't know if we got quite the day in a life would you say um, yes, please. Thank you yeah. for bringing that up. Uh, I did give a little bit of an overview. So a day in the life of um, a clinical research associate, for instance, would include travel. Um, there is the need to be on site 
at the facility that is conducting this clinical trial. Um, a lot that has to do with just um, confidentiality of patient information that's being, that's being viewed. Um, they will go in to this site. They will say, hey, you know, let's look at the inclusion exclusion criteria of this particular protocol. Tell me about this patient that you've enrolled and let's make sure that um, they've met all these all these qualifications. Um, and that you know, so by the site where it's being done, you're talking about the pharma site. This isn't the hospital it's or a hospital. clinic. It, it is a hospital. Mm -hmm. So you're going to a hospital setting hospital or clinic. Uh -huh. Yep. OK. Great to know that. Yep. And sit down and actually do a chart review. Um, it's it's a very in-depth chart review that looks at, um, you know, what what are what are the inclusion? What does their diagnosis look like? Does it match inclusion exclusion criteria? When did they start taking the medication? Um, are they having any, any side effects? When did they start? When did they stop? Uh, what medications are they taking that could affect this uh, particular um, uh could be a potential interaction. Like it's very clinically minded. And um, unfortunately, not all, um, I'll back up, CRAs do not have to be nurses. But I think that, uh, in my opinion, we should have a lot more nurses in that particular role because of our clinical background. Um, as far as a clinical trial educator is concerned, we work more on the recruitment side of things. So we don't do chart reviews, but we do travel to these sites and talk about you know, what does your patient pathway look like? Um, how you're doing a hypertension study. Um, you know, how many patients do you have currently that have hypertension that meet this inclusion exclusion criteria? Oh, you have 100. OK, well, what is going to be your process for reaching out to these people and asking if they're interested? Um, do you, how many of those do you think might be interested? Well, let's say that, you know, less than they anticipated were, would be interested are willing to sign up. Okay, well, let's think about a way that maybe we can collaborate with um, your, your colleague, you know, so-and-so and such-and-such -and, -such and talk about this, um, this clinical trial and see if they're interested in uh, referring any of their patients to see if they want to participate in this in this particular study. And for the more complicated therapeutic areas, let's say um, lupus, you know, that's not as straightforward as, as hypertension, then the clinical trial educators can partner with um, patient advocacy groups for lupus and really educate those individuals about clinical trials in general, and then, you know, educate about that specific clinical trial. And if they're interested, connect them with the site. Mm -hmm. um, that is best done by nurses because we understand um, what they're talking about when they're telling us about their their disease process. And, you know, if they say, oh, well, I have, you know, this confounding factor. And then our minds were like, oh, well, that, that means that they're not going to you know be able to to uh, participate because that's definitely an include an exclusion criteria, um, maybe not in name, but in symptom. Right. So that's where we are really helpful um, in in recruitment. And, you know, people sometimes say recruitment and they're like, mm, recruitment sounds like a bad word. It's, it's really not. Um, it's all about informing the potential participant about what their options are. It is always voluntary. It's voluntary from uh, the minute you you sign the document until the end of the study. If at any point they want to um uh, become not participate any longer than then it's absolutely um, the participant's choice 
to not do that. And why is recruitment important? Recruitment is important because if you think about it, a medication has to go through um, these trials to be approved by the FDA and come to market, right? And when you set up a clinical trial, you say, to be statistically significant, I need X number of patients, right? So you can't close that trial until you get to X number of patients. So if it takes you so much longer to get to X number of patients than you anticipated it would, then that just means that the approval potentially of the medication is delayed and it could be a medication that is life-saving or even just has a better safety and efficacy profile than something the patient is already taking, right? So that's why recruitment is important. And, 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 and I hope I explained why being a nurse is helpful in these areas as well. Yeah. Definitely. But then I think uh, nurses should be in every industry. I, I think wherever we are, we bring something to the to the table that isn't brought by any other group. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, just instincts about relationships yeah. and people and, um, you know, just behavior and just all kinds of things that nurses pick up over years of working with people, maybe not at their best self. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's really important. So as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is really challenging as far as if you need so many people in the study and you're you're collecting people who are going through what you're saying is, you know, you're looking through their their charts and their records and and talking with them to see if they actually fit the criteria needed to be able to have a good study. Then you have all of the things that life happens so either they decide, um, gee, my life is much busier than it was before, and now I'm not going to be able to stay in this. Is there, I mean, you must have to get beyond the number that you need so yeah. that if people are coming and going, mm -hmm. uh, that you still have an adequate study at the end of it. Yes, yes. They definitely have to take into consideration a certain percentage um, built in that is lost to follow-up, patients who are lost to follow-up, or just, you know, Maybe they stop taking the medication, but they still will come in and, and have blood testing um, done. It's, there's a lot of caveats to that. I have a lot of curiosity, too, because I know there's usually a, a blind study or double blind or whatever they call it. Um, mm -hmm. So that people know when they go in, they may be getting a placebo or they may be getting the actual drug. So do you have people feeling like, OK, I'm pretty clear I'm not getting anything. This is nothing is different for me. So this is a placebo. I'm out of here. Yeah, it, it definitely happens. You know, we have that conversation um, ahead of time. Like this is this is 50 50 chance or this is a three in one that you'll get active drug and, you know, one in. So we have that conversation. But um, and it you know, it, it happens where they feel like they're not getting any benefit. And so they decide to drop out. But you know, surprisingly, a lot of participants really understand that they're doing this not for a potential benefit to themselves, which, again, we can never guarantee uh, a benef benefit, but we can say there may be a potential. They understand that if they're um, not seeing a benefit, that there's some altruism there, that they know that they're contributing to um, the future of medicine and they continue to, to stay in the study. And a lot of people do want to do that. Um, what would it take for a study to be ended because of side effects that are not um, uh, either expected or um, 
are just not acceptable. So, you know, I can't give you a definitive answer about that, but I, but I can definitely tell you that um, safety is um, at the forefront of this industry. And if there is any indication, um, even in one participant, that something is awry, then everything stops. <laughs> and it is looked at very carefully, and then a decision is made. Okay. And would you say that's pretty clear across the industry? Absolutely. And, and I know Jan said it's regulated, so it, it isn't yeah. even something they can. Yeah. All, all, all um, studies have a safety committee Okay, that's in charge of this. Yeah. So in the last few minutes that we have, if we could uh, again talk, if there's anything more you want to say about the transition consideration of going from the bedside to a corporate environment, what are some of the things people should be thinking about? And this can be either of you just jump in if, if you have some thoughts about it. You know, I'm sitting at the bedside. I'm totally frustrated with it. It's not meeting my needs, either financially or with my family or whatever it is that I'm looking for. Um, what do, because I know when I was at the bedside, it just felt like, well, this is all I know. I can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. So any thoughts? Janice, do you want to start from your perspective? Sure. Um, so I, I, I think there's really three things that you have to think about. First of all, if you are ready to make a change, there are three things that you can do. One is, is you have to understand the industry, how it operates, how it's regulated, and you know, and educate yourself on even the, the range of roles that you could take on is number one. Number two, you really want to make sure your resume speaks to that role that you're applying for and you're able to translate effectively all of the wonderful skills that you have from mm -hmm. being at the bedside to that particular role. And then finally, interviewing and really thinking about most of these companies do what they call situational interviews. Yes. Tell me about a time yep. right, where you were called a behavioral interviewing. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you really need to think about those situations that demonstrate, you know, how you collaborate, um, how you have critical thinking skills, um, how you innovate. Mm -hmm. And so I would say those are the three things that you would like to think about as you make this change. Right. So um, learning about the uh, what this industry is like, I'm guessing your, your classes would be a wonderful way to find that out. Yeah. And the reason that myself and Jessica and three other nurses partnered with the ACMA is because there was no program out there for nurses and we never learned about the industry in school. Right. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, you know, the nurse to pharma .org is the website where you can find the program and that and the education will then really help best position you for these various roles. OK. And then on the resume, what would be some things that would really stick out if uh, you were applying uh, for a role like this? I don't know. Jessica, do you want to take that? Yes, um, I would. I would say it's a little bit different on the uh, research side than, than the side that, that Janice is uh, coming from. Um, on the research side, it's really important to have some basic knowledge and be able to translate that um, related to research. So talking about good clinical practice, um, talking about um, uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria, uh, that you're you know, able to you know, recognize um, 
from a, a patient diagnosis and, and chart review, whether or not they meet these uh, inclusion exclusion criteria are really important. Um, I think as much of that jargon as you can put into uh, a resume is going to give you um, a second look. I used to tell people to go to the um, uh, whatever the the um, uh, when they're when they're looking for somebody, they usually will have, you know, what these are the criteria, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. I always would tell people, use the words they use yes, exactly. in their ad because that's they're going to go, oh, wow, they know mm -hmm. about you know, this thing yeah. that's to us. And um, they don't realize that you're actually lifting the words that they had in their ad. And, that and uh, actually, you know, just to add on to what Jessica just said, so they're in the program, we really built out what is the clinical trial drug development mm -hmm. process, um, how are trials conducted so that they learn about some of the jargon and the processes in clinical trials, whether that's in pharmaceuticals, medical device, or diagnostics. So that's, well, they that's wouldn't really expect you to have experience and background in this area. They would be willing to train you uh, if you came in and had interest. So in, in clinical research, there are some areas that, yes, they would be willing to, to if you had some you know, basic knowledge, um, they would be willing to bring you in and train you. I, I can't um, uh, over, um, oh, can you hear me okay? Sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. Um, I, I also want to make sure that I say that, you know, if you're currently at the bedside, and you really are interested trans in transitioning into like a clinical research organization or the life sciences that have to do with, um, you know, doing doing the research and supporting research. This is a great education program. Another thing you might want to think about doing is look and see if you have any if there are any research nurse or research coordinators or coordinator positions open. Um, the uh, education program will definitely get you prepped for that. And then if you actually have some of that. Um, experience, like real world experience as well, um, you're, you are a shoe in. Okay. Well, that's good. And then what kind of uh, education background? Do you have to have a PhD? Do you have to have a lot of research um, background? So what, what would be like the minimum that might be in, that they'd be interested in? I know it depends on the job itself, but it does depend on the job. Janice, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I would say that the vast majority of nurses that I worked with um, at Merck that were in a variety of roles were, were BSM. Okay. Um, okay. And there, there were some master's prepared and some doctor prepared, but the vast majority were BSM. Okay. Same, same for me, vast majority uh, BSN. I think, it, you know, at this time, you can pretty much bet that that's the minimum requirement um, to make a transition um, into this particular industry. Um, and, you know, the terminal degrees, the doctor of nursing, uh, you know, nurse practitioner, they, they can even go further into, into higher roles. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention with going for the interview, don't take that lightly because uh, anybody who has been in a position for a number of years, you know, even five years, 10 years, 15 years or more, you have not done an interview in a while and it is really a good idea to find somebody that you can interview practice with especially yes. with this behavioral what we used to call behavioral response or um, situational kinds of things um, you don't have to have the specific i mean they're going to give you a broad category so 
tell me about a time that you had to deal with conflict. Tell me about a time you had a serious um, accident occur. Um, what did you do? And so bring in already prepared two or three stories about every possible thing you can think of they might ask you uh, about. And, and even sometimes if you only have two or three period, those can fit in with different categories. You can kind of build on the same uh, information that you're using as an experience, but you can show how that applies also to this situation or that situation. We're really at the end of our time and this always goes so very fast, but this has been really enlightening for me. So I have to think it's been uh, helpful for other nurses too. And we will be putting this out. We encourage you to spread it further. And then I'd like to uh, encourage anybody who's watching this also send it out further among your um, peers and, and the people that connect with you. Because nurses are looking right now more than ever before for something that is not necessarily what they have done, but something they can feel like is a new challenge and that they can feel like they're contributing in a positive way. So anything either of you would like to add just as a, a one sentence end? Uh, Jan first. So I would say, um, you know, trust that your hard earned clinical skills actually have a broader application. Yeah. And just go for it. Yeah, exactly. And Jessica? I don't think I could say it any better than that. Um, and, you know, sometimes doing hard things ends up paying off in spades. So um, if this sounds like something you're interested in doing, do the hard work. I would still love to have you guys, you know, at least Jan and maybe someone else with you uh, to talk about this topic in more directions and more uh, areas. So if you think of some ways that you would like to do that, let me know. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank and you. thank you to our audience for watching and for sending it on to whoever else you'd like to. Thank you so much. Thank Bye -bye. you, Leanne. Thank Bye -bye. you, Jessica. Thank you. <laughs>